Hello. You're on with Nick and Fiona. It shocks me when I think what I was like when I was seven or ten or even fifteen that I could have done something like that. Welcome to the playlist where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Bassine. Hey Nick, what are we talking about today? Well, Fiona, today we're talking about the return of the Up series. It's Michael Apted's seven yearly I don't really know how you say it, every seven years, but uh, his film series about a group of people um, in England chronicling their lives, catching up with them every seven years. Uh, 63 Up is is happening. And well, you're talking to Michael Apted. Very much so. About this very popular and um, incredible series. I'm a little bit excited about that. Yeah, I mean, I would be too if I had been invited. We're also talking about what we've been watching, but first, 63 Up. In 1964, Granada Television brought together a group of seven-year-olds. When I grow up, I want to be an astronaut. We have followed their lives every seven years. I don't want to keep still. It's life, you know. Don't wait for nobody. They talked about their dreams. If I could have two girls and two boys. Their ambitions. I'd quite like to get into politics. And their fears for the future. Life is what happens while you're waiting for something else. I don't think life is there to be regretted. You gotta make the most of it while you've got it. That's how you become the person you are. It's a picture of how any person, how they change. Give me a child until he is seven, and I will give you the man. So 63 Up is the latest installment of the Up series where we catch up with a group of English people who we've known since they were seven. Mm-hmm. And these documentaries, they come in and out of your life, but every time they come back... It's like a big uh, punch to the gut. Yeah, a little bit. Well, Um, it's every seven years of our lives too. I mean, you know, I wasn't around in 64, but, you know, these movies have been around and every now a new one comes out every seven years. You see what they've been up to, but also you reflect on what you've done in the last seven years. Yes. It's, I mean, it's a monumental cinematic tribute to mortality Mm. and, um, I mean, it makes me just think about super big existential questions, and I mean, it's such a it's such a huge achievement, and it's such a simple idea. You don't mm. see it play out all that much anywhere, except in Boyhood, where you get a little taste of this kind of following somebody through his life. And I mean, I um, in order to prepare for sixty three up, I went and started to watch from the beginning. A lot of people have, yeah, <laughs> because they are all up at SBS on demand at the moment. Yes, and I encourage everyone. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of watching, but it, I think it's totally worth it. Just being able to check in with people's hopes and dreams and how they evolve and how life works out for people, how it humbles people, how it, it just goes. And some people have a very Zen attitude about it. And I'm just here. I'm, I'm just here. And this is how this is happening. And some people, it, things haven't worked out so mm-hmm. well. And I mean, it's super life affirming and heartbreaking at the same time. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to 63. Yeah. Up. People are 63 now. It's when you, as I'm led to believe, start to reflect on, might you be around for the next one? Yeah. It's And this, yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying anything, but this one is a little, broke my heart a little bit. But also that 63 up, you know, it has been seven years, obviously, but the shadow of Brexit looms large in these films. Oh, and right. because it is sort of a story of Britain, the idea was, of course, an, the original social experiment, show me the boy at seven and I'll show you the man. And that question is re-asked and people reflect on that idea, choosing children from vastly different socioeconomic groups. Yes. Two of the boys were in homes. There were a couple of toffee kids and scrappy little um, kids from... The east, end, east side. Totally, yeah. east end, yeah. So 
vastly different, but it was a social experiment to see does your living circumstance dictate your path in life or heavily influence at the very least. And I think for now it to be reframed in the, in the lens of Brexit where it's a big class issue, uh, there's a lot of complicated social conditions being looked at in terms of how people voted and how maybe they regret how they voted, what the hell is going on in Britain at the moment, what is Britain, what does it mean to be British. I think it's an interesting way to view this, this new one. Going back to the beginning, what was very interesting was seeing how pointed the questions about class were. Mm. They were very upfront about what do you think about rich people? What do you think about poor people? What do you think about colored people? Mm-hmm. And you get some very some very honest answers. Um, I think as it goes on, there are more uh, clear statements on class when things just come out naturally rather than what do you think about class? Mm. But it's fascinating. I mean, there was such a... There's a big moment in either 21 or 28 where Tony, the um, the cabbie, the mm-hmm. a- aspiring jockey, mm. want to be a jockey. Yeah, he is. <laughs> um, where he says, uh, "All all I want to know about is mom and dad and love." Yeah, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. And he's, I don't know. It's just it's so it's really refreshing and but also, I mean, just it's illuminating. Mm. And also the way people sometimes resent. Still participating, but still do. Yes, <laughs> Some yeah. have tapped out at various times and checked back in, but, yeah, there is only one participant who, after 21, chose to not reappear and has been a little acrimonious, I think, in being referenced <laughs> in some of the films. Uh, so that's Charles, and he's gone on to be a documentary maker. And, um, yeah, I right. think he resented the idea of being manipulated in, in the documentary format, his words. Uh, well, it's impossible to have a totally clean social experiment because these people are now very famous Mm. And they are aware of how they appear on camera and how they appeared last time. And Mm. so they try to comment on that and they're trying to contextualize who they were with who they are now. And it's, it's not like just pulling someone off the street and getting an honest opinion. There's so much going on in every interview, especially as it, as it keeps going on. It's so heavy and loaded. Yeah. So have these films been a part of your life as well? Yeah, forever. Mm, Um, I don't think I watched... Well, the first one would have been before I was born, yeah. I believe. But um, no, I think I became aware of them in the 90s and I got really into them. And watching them again was taking me back and just reminding me of some of the characters. So there's someone like, like Susie, yeah. like Susie, who starts off as a racist. I don't know oh. <laughs> how much she evolves. She she says, and when she's seven, she doesn't want to have anything to do with colored people. Mm. And she doesn't really back off that uh, <laughs> that claim subsequently. Um, but she's also, and this is what the series is so good at, she's also clearly very, especially in her earlier years, very affected by her parents splitting up. Yeah, She spends long summers in beautiful places with her father, and she clearly hates it, either because of her feelings for her father or she just seems super unhappy. And so it's also very sad. And you can tell that she got this perspective from her parents and so it's not like she's, she's, she's a human being. She's not a monster. She has questionable views and she's very when unhappy. When she was seven in 1964. Yes, let's frame that as well. <laughs> um, well, she didn't back off in, mm, when she was 14 or 21. Enough. So I think she was standing fast on not knowing colored people. Also, people like um, John, who's like a, he's like a bad guy in an 80s movie with his very posh accent, over-the-top posh accent, if you just knew that guy, if you just met that guy when he was 21, you'd think, well, 
This is somebody I might not want to know. But when you check in with somebody every seven years, you get to know you get to know a person and you just see how life how life treats everyone in a way the same. I mean, he has lots he had lots of opportunities and a great education and all of that. He has a strong social justice imperative though as well. He he runs a charity so it's yeah. There you go. Yeah, he so doesn't think, start off like that kind of no, person. No, no, no. It's not, he's the archetype of a posh little yeah. British kid reading the Financial Times, yes. etc. But you do see how people's lives, like that, they yeah, evolve. They, yeah, exactly. It's and not everyone does fit the boy at seven yeah. man. But also, you do see how it has opened doors for people, and he himself admits that throughout some of the films as well. He's he's very aware of his privilege. <laughs> And Andrew as well, actually. Andrew and John were two of the three posh boys. Yeah. And Charles, of course, is the one I mentioned who hasn't come back since 21. You but- could tell he kind of stood out because of uh, he had the long hair and he, was, he wasn't dressed as nicely as the other two guys. Well, not in a suit. Yes, <laughs> like yeah, they exactly. were in yeah, not yeah, not yeah. like a businessman. Absolutely, I've always been quite partial to Jackie. She's um, oh, she's great. She's wonderful and has had her share of tragedy in her life and pain and but. I love that she really takes Michael Apted to task sometimes and challenges him on like what? <laughs> a question. Well, in 63 especially she does, which I'll, I'll talk to Michael Apted about. But okay. um, she, you know, she's not backwards and coming forwards. And I love that about her. I love her accent. I love her demeanour. And um, she gives as good as she gets, I think. I really, I always look forward to seeing where Jackie is seven years later. I really like um, Nick. I think he is very charismatic yeah. um, and very self-aware and self-effacing, and, um, at and seven, clearly very smart. At seven, was asked about girlfriends and said, and said "I don't answer those types of questions." Yeah. I especially want to see where he he is every seven years. He, you know, went to America as an astrophysicist. He could yeah, probably yeah. not pronounce it. I can't. Um, Neil. Yeah. So Neil, um, things start to go. It looks like they go south in twenty-one because um, he didn't get. Well, he attributes it to not getting into Oxford. And he's living in London at a, in a not uh, great uh, apartment. And he seems super depressed. He seems very down. Well, yeah, I, uh, he clearly struggles with mental health um, challenges, I think. He's pretty open about that. So Michael Apted produced and directed this series. And you can hear it's his voice asking the questions. And you got a chance to talk to him. Mm. Let's, um, let's hear from him. Michael Apted, thank you so much for joining us on The Playlist. This is a genuine thrill. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> and enormously thank you for staying with uh, the stories of, of these incredible people throughout the years. I guess an early question, what does it mean to you to see the impact of these films on the wider audience, sort of the expectation every seven years when a new one comes around? Well, you know, it's like a, it's like a great dream, really, that people can stay with it and it's also good fortune that I can keep doing it, that uh, all the people involved in it seem interested enough to stay involved in it, you know, one or two exceptions, but uh, generally it's been remarkable the way people have stood by it, but uh, it's it's always incredibly uh, rewarding when it seems to play well every generation, you know, though we've done well all the time, so... It's a great feeling, I tell you. I think it's the most important thing. I take it as the most important thing I've ever done because it's you know no one's ever done it before, and I don't think anybody ever will do it. 
Because it takes such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine, yes, the, the time you, you put into this. Um, and I guess from the first one, you know, it was originally intended to, to be a one-off really and yeah. I think it has a call out to tune back in in the year 2000 to see what's become of them. Um, when and how and why, I guess, was it decided to become a seven-yearly chronicle? Well, it was, it was. it's kind of an embarrassing story really because uh, – you know, the first one was a huge success, but because it was such a, a fresh look at, you know, a, a kind of terrible malaise with my great country, you know, that there was such class restrictions that, you know, kids never got an equal shot. And, you know, it caused a huge uh, eruption in England, but uh, it wasn't, uh, hardly dare tell you this, but I think it was about five years after we'd done it that I was sat in the canteen at um, at Granada in Manchester, and Dennis Foreman, who was running the film, running the company, came and sat with me and said, "Have you ever thought of going back to see these children?" So I said, "Oh, oh, that's a good idea." And so I did it. And as soon as I, you know, done the first day's filming of fourteen up, I got it back in touch with him and said, look, um, you know, I, I have ambitions outside Granada and outside working in England, but uh, please, if you keep going with this series, I promise that I'll be there every seventh year to do it, mm-hmm. which is a, a promise I kept. And we're all very grateful that, that you have. <laughs> so what, what is it that's kept you doing it every seven years? Like, you know, you made that commitment back then, but sort of what's the lure of it for you? Well, I mean, because it's incredibly powerful and unique. Mm. No one's ever done it, or if anybody's done it, they haven't stayed long at it. And, you know, I was determined to just keep the thing going as long as the participants would, t- you know, take part in it all. So I just could see the power of the program and the power of the program got stronger and stronger as it got more and more mature. So, um, you know, once I got the, the hang of it and once we got it running, as it were, then it was just, you know, just I just had to make sure that I could keep a certain part of my time in, during the seventh year to, to do it all. Mm-hmm. But I just could think that if I stuck with this, you know, it could become a really powerful and important piece that will stay around for some time. Mm. And you mentioned the social circumstances of the first one. Coming in now in 63, there does seem a bit of an alignment. You know, of course, Brexit is um, quite strong throughout these conversations, as is Trump for, for Nick in the US. Did you specifically ask those questions or did they sort of emerge in the conversations you were having to bring well, the politics out? You know, we with Brexit, you know, we didn't quite know what was going to happen because we got our transmission date, which is these last three days, and we didn't know, you know, what we thought when we started out on it, the Brexit thing would have been sorted out by that time. But as we were getting deeper and deeper into the program, into the preparation and into the shooting, you know, it become, became clearer that it wasn't going to be sorted out. And so we didn't want to make a program which had no closure to it at all or or an issue that had no closure. So I always had some extra money in the budget that if Brexit did suddenly 
you know, get a bomb under it and get going, that uh, we could do something about it. But I mean, I ask, still ask questions about it, but um, until there was some sense or you know point of some closure with it, it was it kind of stuck there as you know in the corner of my head is what are we going to do with this? And since nothing happened, you know, at all, then we were all right. And I, some of the questions, some of the answers to the questions, you know, that I had about Brexit were so good that I put them into the story anyway, even if it wasn't resolved, the thing. But, um, you know, it's, it, it was, became a kind of burden in a way because, you know, if it had all happened, say, three weeks ago, I would have looked really foolish. Sure. So we were lucky there, I suppose. I mean, this is my own selfish view of it. But as far as the program goes, it, it sort of timed out okay, i.e. that it's kind of you know, got moribund in the last uh, few months, and so no one even seems to be thinking about it very much. You know, it's kind of ground to a halt. Sure. You know, the films are very much the product of the, the year they're made, and the politics has emerged over some of the episodes. I mean, I guess we can speak to Peter about that, specifically about the, the impact of politics raising. On Peter, some people have come in and out throughout the course of the films, chosen not to come back and then then have or not. Peter has been transparent about his reasons for coming back um, in the last one. Do you care why people come back? Is it more you'd rather... No, um... <laughs> no I mean, no, he was honest about it because, yeah. because I kept saying, if you want to put your band on the map, put them in, the, put them in our film. <laughs> and eventually he figured that out and did. And he's always been great in the films. I mean, he's a, a tremendous asset to us. But, you know, I was perfectly open with him and said, you know, I could do you a big favour if you come in the programmes because I promised that I'll show you playing some music of yours. So that won him over. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and with others, how much coaxing do, you know, they complain to you in person quite quite often. How much coaxing do certain people need to uh, to participate again? Well, some, some of them need, need a lot, you know, and others are there for me all the time, you know, without any melodrama or anything like that. So, you know, most of them are ready for it. I mean, they have their worries and their questions about it and all that sort of stuff, but I think they've learned to trust me. But, I mean... I'm at their mercy, really. I mean, if they say, I hated that bit that we did about so-and-so, don't, please don't put it in the program, well, then I, I can't, I won't, because I, I am being my commitment, in a sense, is to keep as many people in as I can the whole time for every generation of it. So really, they do have a kind of strong grip on me, if you know what I mean. Sure. And you know, if, I, if, if I'm very concerned about something and I'm very much wanted, then, I, you know, I'll fight for it. But at the end, they have the final word on it because, you know, they can say, well, if you run that, I don't want to be doing it anymore. So, as I said, my main priority, other than to, you know, make a decent program is that to keep it going and to keep as many people in it as possible. The more people that are in it, the more powerful it is. Mm, absolutely. And uh, in, I think it was in 49 Up, it's Jackie who comments that she doesn't think that she's turned out the way that you expected her to. And I think Tony says the same thing in, in, in this recent one. Are they right? Have, have you been surprised at the way the journey some of their stories have taken? I suppose uh, looking back on it, not particularly. No, mm -hmm. I suppose at the time I I was. I, I probably would have 
to wonder if so-and-so could have done more or some surprised how well some people have done in the last seven years. But um, I think it's sort of worked out in a, in a reasonable way. I, I mean, I don't think anybody's gone off the rails. And, you know, I don't think anybody has changed out of all recognition. I think it's been fairly... Not, not predictable, but I, I think it's followed a kind of a logical pattern that they're, you know, that they're getting older and what, what happens to them and whatever. I mean, I don't think there have been any kind of catastrophes or anything like that, you know, other than you know, an early death or something like that. But um, I, I, I never wanted it to be melodramatic. I mean, I wanted the melodrama to be contained within the limits of the film, that if, if we start or pretend that we're trying to influence it and in whatever in a strong way, then that would be ridiculous. So I, I don't think looking at it that I'm that surprised by the way it's turned out. I mean, there have been good surprises and bad surprises. I mean, I was always said to to Tony, you know, that I, I'm sure I'd be visiting you in prison sometime, especially in the early years. <laughs> yeah. But he was very annoyed about that and, and, and mentions it constantly. I think he mentioned it in this one. He does. <laughs> but I, I, you know, so I, I try not to do any of that sort of stuff. I got told off about that by him, and I'm sure I would have done by others if I try and predict it. Sure. And speaking of being told off, um, what's it like being on the end of a spray from Jackie? She, she's not backwards and coming forwards. <laughs> no, she's she's hilarious. I mean, we, are, we we love each other to death. But you know, she gives me a hard time, and I try and give her a, a hard time, as it were. I mean, we don't mince our words together. But I'm I'm never cruel to them or unkind to them, and I certainly don't try and trick them or anything like that. I don't want to use any, because you know, it, it's heavy going for them to do this and to have them open themselves as much as they do to me. So, you know, I don't play games with them and whatever, but, uh, you know, she and I do have a very kind of up-and-down relationship. You know, we do have a... We love and then we hate and all that kind of stuff. I mean, she was very funny, and I think it was 49 up when she just said, I'm not doing this at all, Michael. Let's stop. And, you know, we did stop, and then we tried to sort it out and all that and carried on. But, you know, she's a very frank and clear person, so I, I feel that I can push her a bit, mm -hmm. you know, and, and make sure, is this the truth? And are you really telling me what you believe and all this? I don't want them to try and hide stuff or play games with me, yeah. but I have to be doing it in a gentle way. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about your tone as well, sort of the way you approach the questions as well. You're very calm on um, We Only Hear You, of course. That style of, of interviewing on camera, um, off camera, obviously, on microphone, How have you cultivated that over the years or is that just sort of the way yes. you've asked your questions yes, I, forever? I mean, I've learned how to do it. I mean, it took me a long time to figure it out. I mean, first first of all, I always had a kind of list of questions in my in my hand and all this and went plowing through them. And then I thought, this is ridiculous because I'm asking them to tell me what I want them to tell me because of, I'm asking all the questions and all that kind of stuff. And as it went on the show, and I became much more, I mean, first of all, in the first few, I suppose, I would 
sort of go through it with them before we filmed and all that kind of stuff. Then I thought, that's ridiculous. You know, it's got to be spontaneous. And then my questioning became much more off the cuff, really. I mean, I knew what I wanted from them or what areas I wrote, but I, I didn't sort of give them any advance of what the questions were or what I wanted to talk about. You know, but I remember in the early days, I would kind of go through it with them before we shot it and say, well, I'll do this and then we'll do that. And are you happy to talk about this and all this? But then, I, then in the last you know, two or three, I didn't prepare it at all. I mean, I knew I thought about it a lot, but I didn't have a list or I didn't have, you know, the questions all laid out and everything. I just played it by ear which I think, you know, was the best way to do it because then it had a kind of organic growth to it, each of the interviews. And especially when we went from celluloid, you know, in, into video and whatever, where you could, you know, go for a whole hour without stopping. You know, when you had the film, you know, you had 12 minutes and I used to have people kind of count me through it. So, you know, with little cards. And so, so I wouldn't ask an incredibly important question with only one minute left of film. <laughs> but that, that, that having it on videotape gave you much more um, room for manoeuvre. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, I t- took advantage of all those, you know, kind of technical things that were happening. But I think emotionally, I also felt it would be better if, you know, it, I tried to make it, you know, not not so much an interrogation, but a discussion, and not to have everything in my head ready to go. That I knew that the main main points I want to deal with, but I didn't rush and do them all at once. I just let it kind of grow, and I think it put them more at ease. That they didn't think they were being asked questions like doing an exam or something like. So that the least dramatic I made it, I think, the better it was for them. Mm-hmm. And the way they answer as well, that sort of changed over the years. It's like it is striking how articulate they are and introspective. Um, do, you, do you put that down to they're the used to this now and sort of also your rapport has developed so much over the years? Just the detail with which they analyse their own lives. Yeah, I got more experienced and thought a lot about how to do it and all the time and they got older and more mature and, you know, although we've always been <laughs> the same ages apart, you know, as you get older, you know, you <clears throat> you get more kind of grown up about all that sort of stuff. So the idea of me being the kind of the teacher and then being the pupil, I mean, that that kind of left after two or three of the of the films, you know, that the age gap kind of diminished as we, as we got older. And, you know, you do return to the, the premise of the series, Show Me the Child at Seven and I'll Show You the Man, and you put that yeah. question to all of them. What were you like as a seven-year-old? Well, it's hard to say. I, I was very, very shy and very, very quiet. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't say boo to a goose or whatever. And I, I didn't really come out of that. I was always very quiet and well-behaved and all that kind of stuff. But um, it wasn't really till I you know, left school and college and started to work and started to find out about stuff and, and, and get a sense of what I wanted to do with my life that I got a bit more kind of outspoken and a bit more courageous, as it were. But I was impossibly shy when I was young, although I'm sure that my 
family, uh, most of whom have passed away, but uh, they probably wouldn't agree. But I felt I was very, always very kind of shy, ridiculously shy. But um, and then I did a James Bond film, and it's the thought of me, at, you know, whatever, however old I was, you know, thinking that I would do a James Bond film, you know, with casts of thousands and millions of dollars and all this. That would be seemed to be uh, inconceivable. But nonetheless, you know, I did it, and uh, you know, I, I enjoyed doing it. Mm-hmm. But it shocks me when I think what I was like when I was seven or ten or even fifteen that I could have done something like that. You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Was there ever a point along the way that there was risk of the show not continuing at all, like, or is it just always just been? Well, a- I think it's always been there because it was. It was amazingly, as I said, the first episode was an extraordinary event because it was the first serious documentary that spoke about the nature of our social life, you know, and, and how our class system. And so, you know, it, it immediately hit a hit a nerve with the, with the audience and with the, with the press and all that kind of stuff. And so, there was never any question that we, that we wouldn't continue. And I never indicated that I would ever want to leave it. Yeah. So they always had that promise, as it were. So, no, I mean, it's always been to Granada as it was then. You know, it's you know, been a valuable asset. And it's been, a val- think, a valuable asset to all of us who've been in it, you know, and who, whatever role we play in it. Yeah. So there was never any question that anybody would you know, drop it or, cancel it or whatever we never really had that problem to deal with and also it always got a very decent audience mm-hmm. so you know it paid its way and it became internationally very popular so i don't think we ever had a, a fear that it would be shut down there is of course now that they are getting on in years and there is a lot of sadness in in this series this time around yes. um what is that like for you to to see this the story take this sad sort of turn with a couple of of your friends now well, participants? I mean, you know, I just want to be careful that it doesn't become morbid. Yeah, and that's all I can say, really. I mean, you know, life and death, we're all going to go through it, and uh, I wouldn't want to stop it because you know a, a lot of them had died. I, I don't know. I can't even conceive of it, but. You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so much older than them that I'm sure I'll be gone a long time before they will. I won't have to see them, you know, disappearing, as it were. But, um, I mean, it is it is a question, which, I mean, we were so shocked with, you know, when, when we, we lost people this time and, you know, Nick got ill and all this. It's always very, very difficult to deal with because, it, you know, they are family. Mm. Even if you don't see them, they're part of my life and I'm part of their life. So you can never tell how you respond to this. But I just don't know. I mean, for seven years' time, where will any of us be? You know? mm-hmm. No, quite right. Um and obviously I'll front load this by saying I wish you a very long and healthy life. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, any of us could go and get hit by a bus tomorrow. I'll just <laughs> – but um, is, there, is there sort of a – is there a succession plan sort of to, to keep this going should people in the production not um, 
make the seven years? That's a very indelicate question. I apologise, but, you know, I, I wonder. Really, you're being so delicate, <laughs> I couldn't really understand the question, so be bold with it. Okay, and, uh, sorry. If Should you not make the next seven, is there a succession plan to carry on oh, the series? With me? I don't know. Yes, no. I mean, it's, I won't know that unless mm. I become, you know, gaga. I can't actually do it. I mean, mm. I'm alive, but I can't do it. Yeah. But, I mean, it's a pretty deep relationship. I mean, Claire Lewis has been attached to it since 28, and she's very familiar with them and part of the, very much part of the family. I suppose, you know, she could take it on. But, you know, we just have to see. I'll in, let's enjoy this one first. Absolutely. <laughs> Fair point, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so many of us have rewatched the former films, especially in anticipation of, of new ones coming out. Obviously, there are clips you always will put in. Tony's gorgeous, I want to be a jockey, and, and Nick's yeah, yeah. refusal to, bashful refusal to answer those sorts of questions. How do you decide which elements to bring back from previous films and new new footage to to bring in. I think there's some footage in this one that hasn't aired for a couple of decades. How do you pick and choose which archive material to put in? It's not a formula. I yeah. mean, it's just a feeling you have that certain things that they've said over the years are so kind of legendary that yeah. you, you want to hear them again. You know? yeah. um, but it is some, you know, it's kind of difficult to choose you know, what to take from the past and put in the stuff that we've never used before again, since its origins and all that. I'm aware of it. Um, I mean, you know, I don't want to swamp the the stuff with ancient footage, but some things become, you know, relevant. Things they might have said when they were 28 or something that become relevant. You know, it's kind of weird in a sense how um, little really we've preserved it I mean you know that we we don't have that much access to everything that we've done which has been disappointing to, to find find that out I mean they only kept the program of seven up not the, not the off cuts and I don't think they did it with 14 or 21 so it wasn't as though it was kind of preserved in velvet and all this kind of stuff, as I'm sure other organisations might have done. But, I mean, I can't, I have no complaints about Granada. They've been phenomenal about this from the very, very beginning. But, um, you know, sometimes there are things I remember that, you know, that have disappeared. But anyway, I mean, I, I think it's nice to be able to use some old stuff, you know, to show the passing values or the passing of incidents or whatever. But to get the balance between the new stuff and the old stuff is is always a a moment-by-moment decision. I mean, some people are more interesting who who change more than others. You know, there's no formula for it. It's, you know, each one is a different case and with a different amount of demands to it and whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, at what point do you reconnect with them or do you keep in touch throughout the years or is it, no? No, Claire does because I live in America. We make sure that Claire sees them all every year. I mean, not not every year, but sees them regularly to keep in touch with them physically, not just to make a phone call. So she spends Mm -hmm. some time during Mm -hmm. the interim of going to 
see them. She'll probably go and see them in a couple of years or something like that for mm-hmm. now. Okay. Unless, I mean, they're pretty good at telling us if things are, if there are big changes in their life and stuff like that. They're pretty, you know, we try to encourage them to let us know. But we, I, I don't t- try to um, in any way sort of burden them with it. And if I can do nice things for them, I mean, like when I did the Bond film and I had a special screening of it in the West End of London mm-hmm. for all of them mm-hmm. to come and see it. When I, could, when I can do that, I always like to do that if I can spoil them, as it were. Sure, sure. But we do, we do keep in touch. I mean, we know if anybody gets ill or, or whatever, but we don't want to be a kind of presence in their life, you know, anything more than we are. Sure, sure. And, and with your films, have attempted to give Tony a, a bit part in? <laughs> well, he's, he's doing pretty well. So uh, if uh, I might, that would be fun, wouldn't it? It would be mine. I would not against it, as it were, by any means. But, uh, you know. Yeah. No. Um, and you mentioned you don't, don't live in the UK anymore. Um, no, no. Yeah. But um, I do. I mean, I, I have family here, so I've come here, you know. Quite, quite a few times, you know, I've got uh, family here and all my children are uh, mainly here in, 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 uh, in Los Angeles or in America. But, um, you know, beyond the immediate generation, you know, most of them are still in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so I do go across to make trips there and go and see them and do stuff. But I've also done quite a lot of work in London, I mean, in, in Europe. So uh, I'm not ever a stranger here, as it were. No. And you are making, you know, the definitive British <laughs> lengthy documentary series looking at the people of Britain as, as they age. So, yeah, you're certainly well connected. Yeah. We are part of a um, Movies and TV Culture podcast and we do like to ask our guests while we've got them. It's a bit of a change of um, pace. But what have you been watching? We like to ask what people have been watching lately, sort of their either liking or hating. What's something that you, has been on your radar? What, do you mean the television or movies or stuff like that? Stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's some very interesting stuff coming out from, from Great Britain. I've forgotten uh, what the name of the woman is, but she's a woman who's done two series which are very good, and now she's writing a James Bond. Okay. Yeah, I, I follow English television a lot. And, you know, I try and see documentaries as much as I can. I mean, because the access to material for the average American home is colossal, mm-hmm. you know, with with all, all the companies, the independent companies, you know. So, so there's a chance to option. I mean, I, I don't want to spend my life just watching the TV, but one could. I mean, there's so much stuff on that's worth seeing that um, – no, I do keep in touch with it. Uh, I, I don't know if there's anything at the moment that I die to see or not go out to because it's on or something. But sure. no, I do try to keep up with stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and any more feature films um, in the planning? No, not at the moment. No, it's it's uh, a little tricky for ageing Englishmen here now. You know, there's a, a lot of interest in women and obviously in bringing young people into it. So we all men get a little bit left out, and uh, you know, which is good. I mean, I, I did three terms as president of the Directors Guild of America, and one of my aims was to open it up a bit so 
you know, you could, young people would have chances and women would have chances as, as much as men can. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I was kind of a, you know, a little bit of a looking forward then when I was running the guild. Uh-huh. Um, now I can't get a job. <laughs> you were go. too good but at I, it. <laughs> yeah, you go. Be careful what you dream of, yes. <laughs> Well, no doubt all of the other directors thank you for, for those okay. new opportunities. Right. <laughs> um, well, Michael Apted, thank you so much. It, honestly, I can't express how big a thrill it is to talk to you for what these well, films have been. been. No, very, truly. Very good. Thank you very much and um, a pleasure to talk to you and hopefully see you in seven years. Yes, indeed. I hope we'll all be alive and well. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much. That was Michael Apted. That was great. Mm, career highlight, I think. Sorry, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> 63 Up is airing from June 10, Monday nights on SBS and after broadcast on SBS On Demand. And all the previous installments are available to watch at SBS On Demand. So now we come to the part of the show where we talk about what we've been watching. Fiona, what have you been watching? Uh, I have been watching a uh, little show called The Handmaid's Tale. Never heard of it. Which is back. Season three on SBS Thursday nights and at SPS On Demand also. Three episodes are now out in the world. I've watched all of them. What do you <laughs> think? Well, you might have to listen to Eyes on Gilead, my Ooh. other podcast uh, dedicated to The Handmaid's Tale. There are three, yes, three episodes dropped this week. So two were on air on SBS Australia and there was a bonus third episode at SBS On Demand. So all three are now streaming at SBS On Demand. You, um, you won a prize for that uh, podcast, didn't you? I didn't feed you that line. Yes, we did. Thank you. Best fan cast <laughs> at wow. the Australian Podcast Awards. Wow. Thank you, everyone who listens. So, yes, I'm I'm obsessed with this show, very much so. Uh, I would hope so. Well, yes, You're it would be weird if I wasn't. It. Yeah. So season three now. You watch it, do you? I do. I'm yep. all, well, I haven't watched any of season three yet. Okay. I'm very curious about what's going to happen. Mm. How did the, the previous season end? How did season two end? Uh, it very dramatically ended with her handing over her baby to Emily in the back of a van. Uh, right. In the assumption of take my baby, I shall also get in the van. But nope, shut the doors and stayed put. I remember. Mm, to bring the fight. And also she's got a daughter still in this hellhole, so she can't leave because that then she can't get her daughter back. Right. Great show. Love it. And that's what I've been watching. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and what have you been watching? So uh, I've been watching a couple of things within a similar um, time period. So the first is Warrior, which is in the 70s, Bruce Lee pitched a show, a TV show about um, a martial arts expert who goes through the American West, fighting people and solving crimes. They turned that into Kung Fu starring David Carradine, who, I mean, I, I haven't watched a lot of Kung Fu, but he's the furthest thing from Bruce Lee I can imagine as a martial arts Pretty much. Expert. So now they've kind of made the show theoretically that Bruce Lee had imagined. Right. And I have to say that um, I've seen um, a couple episodes. I don't think it's great. I don't think it's even very good. But the beginning of the show where you get to see a cool martial arts guy kick a bunch of racist butt, it's a lot of fun. And I got really into it at the beginning because- even though the character is, I think he's he's Japanese or half Japanese, his background, 
he looks, uh, his physique is like Bruce Lee's, where he's very live and very fast. Who, is, very who plays him? His name's Andrew Koji. Mm-hmm. He looks good. He looks, he's quite handsome and he, and he fights like Bruce Lee. The first scene is him coming off a boat, landing in San Francisco from China. And yeah, a bunch of uh, bigots, uh, say, call them nasty names, and mm-hmm. he beats them up. It's great. Mm-hmm. I love Very it. Very satisfying for these uncertain times. Um, I think there are some questionable choices with the female characters. Mm, there always are. Lots of prostitutes. That's not great. And some of the characters aren't, uh, they're passing for Chinese. They're not necessarily mm-hmm. don't have Chinese background, but I'm, you know. I don't, want, I don't condemn stuff like that, but it's, you know, it's out there. And um, because it's in the is U.S. Is it in English? Yes. Right. So they, they go. American accents? Yeah, or, American yeah, right. accents. But they, they do a thing where they, everyone's speaking um, a Chinese language and then they kind of change it. Okay. And everyone starts speaking in these perfect uh, American uh, accents. Okay. But, I mean, there's a huge Asian cast. It's kind of nice to see. I think in the hands of maybe better writers, directors, it might, it might've been something super cool because, um, as it happens, I've, I've also been watching, rewatching Deadwood, which mm-hmm. is David Milch's, um, series from the early, uh, 15 years ago or something. And that is about the town of Deadwood, um, when it was a camp and Wild Bill Hickok, who's a famous, uh, gunslinger was passing through and about how that camp became a gold mining, um, gambling hub in, uh, the American West, and it's a similar time period. And in this show, everybody's white, pretty much. Occasionally, you get a there's a Chinese presence in the camp, but the way it's treated, it's it's kind of minimalist. And um, occasionally, there's a Native American that passes through. So Warrior presented kind of how how something like this could look a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Deadwood is a much better show. I mean, it's practically Shakespearean. It's beautiful. The writing and Ian McShane as a swear engine is just amazing. Um, everybody's amazing in it. But watching them back to back, side to side, it's just interesting how things evolve with that time period, how you can show that time period. So yeah, that's mm. what I've been watching. There you go. Great. And so where did you watch those? So Warriors on Foxtel starts um, June 12th. Deadwood, I've been rewatching on Stan, the the new movie. I've been rewatching it because there's a movie coming mm, out. That sure is. It's on HBO. I'm not sure where you can watch it yet. So that's it for our show. Make sure you subscribe to SBS The Playlist wherever you get your podcast. Leave a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to get in touch, we're at SBS Movies on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Nick Bassine on Twitter. I'm at Anything But Fifi. The Playlist is produced by Jeremy Wilmot. See you next week. Thanks for listening.